I do want you this morning, uh, if you have a Bible on just physically or on your phone or iPad or something, uh, go to Genesis chapter number 38. Genesis 38. I'm going to read you three verses from Matthew, but we'll really be in Genesis 38 this morning for uh, the, the entirety of the sermon. So we're starting a Christmas sermon series today called Ornaments of Grace. And if you're like me, I, I never tired of the Christmas season. It rolls around and every year it feels fresh. Every year it feels fun. I, I love it for, for the month of December, just enjoying kind of the post-Thanksgiving all the way up to Christmas season. It never gets old. It just, to me, it gets better and better every year. And even for me as, as a pastor, preaching through the incarnation of Christ and looking at why Jesus came and the story behind that, it just, it never gets old for me. I've only done it for a few years, but it just, I love it. And I so enjoy a Christmas series. I, I don't know if I'll do them for the rest of my life during the month of December, but I enjoy the fire out of them. So we're gonna uh, do one called Ornaments of Grace this year. And if you're like me, your favorite ornament on your Christmas tree at your home or your office or whatever it is, is likely not the most beautiful ornament. It's probably not the most decorative ornament. Your favorite ornament, I bet you, is the ornament that tells a story. It's the ornament that no one else knows why in the world you would have that on your tree, but you know the story behind it. <clears throat> and every year you take it out and it takes you on a trip down memory lane and you want to explain to the kids or you want to explain to the grandkids or you want to talk about why this ornament is on your tree. I asked on uh, social media this week, I asked some people to share with me their favorite uh, Christmas ornament and why it was their most favorite and the story behind it. And I, I was blown away just reading through the thread. Many of you in this room posted on that, and thank you for doing it. It was really cool to read through. But there were lots of ornaments that were commemorating the, the life of a lost loved one that uh, it's the first one on the tree and the last one off. That that's, that's meant to be the, the ornament that symbolizes grandma or mom or dad or grandpa or whoever it is. There were lots of ornaments that were handmade by grandparents or by relatives decades ago that now I have. And it's ugly and weird, but I love it and I put it on my tree. Uh, there, was, there was one, in, uh, and she's in the service this morning. I don't know if she'd want me to share it entirely, but the, the, the sum total of it was there was a, a tree topper on my tree. And when uh, my parents split up, the tree topper was no longer there, but I kept that. And now in my marriage, I put it in my tree every single year. Lots of stories, just cool, beautiful stories of what these ornaments represent to us. I brought mine with me this morning. This is my favorite Christmas ornament. I may get a new favorite one as time goes on, but right now, this is mine. This is a, a little sled with a weird teddy bear on it with a bow tie. And uh, on the bottom it says 1994, so I was seven years old. And it says KMS, which is the initials of my Sunday school teacher who helped me make this. And I, I don't love the ornament necessarily because of my Sunday school teacher, because of church. But for me, when we pull this out and I put it on the tree every year, it takes me back to some of the fondest memories of childhood. This is a little picture. I, I, it takes me immediately back to my living room, where the house that we grew up in. And I can picture the, the sofa and the loveseat. I can, I can picture the tree in the corner. That we, it's a fresh tree that we just cut down. It's the day after Thanksgiving. It's Friday. And I can picture the brothers bantering with each other and my dad stringing the lights. And Alvin and the Chipmunks Christmas on cassette is playing in the background every year. The fire is going. Like it takes me back to those memories when I see this, this little silly teddy bear that's not even worth 10 cents. But it's a special ornament to me that if my kids destroy it or if I lose it, I, I, would, I would not like that. 
And what's interesting is that Matthew gives us the family tree of Jesus. Luke does as well, but Matthew gives us the genealogy or the family tree of Jesus. I'll just for sake of a series call this the first Christmas tree. And Matthew gives us a list of names, and the list of names, it's, it's, it's unique. It's not an exhaustive list. You don't, in genealogies, you just have to be able to trace it back to who you want to get to. You don't have to name every generation. So Matthew would oftentimes list, this guy had this kid, and then this kid had, you know, three generations later, this person. It's, it's not an exhaustive list. There are people that are excluded, that actually were fathers or things inside of this list. And what's surprising to me is not the names that he leaves off of the list, it's the names that Matthew includes on the list. And Matthew's family tree is similar to what most Jewish genealogies would be, which was important to the Jewish people. It's the audience Matthew's writing to. It's this guy had this guy who had this guy who had this guy who had this guy. But Matthew goes out of his way and he puts on the family tree five females. I'm gonna call them ornaments of grace. They are, they're not necessary. For the genealogy, you do not need and this guy had this dude and the mother was so-and-so. You don't need it at all. But he goes out of his way to highlight something that is not the tree itself, but is what I would call an ornament that he is decorating the tree with. And he's trying to draw our attention and say, look at this and look how profound this is and look how magical this is. And, and we're gonna see how important these are. So over the next four Sundays and then our Christmas Eve service, we'll cover all five of these ladies that are included in Matthew's genealogy that is him just decorating the family tree of Jesus is all Matthew's doing here. So listen to Matthew 1. We'll put it on the screen and just be riveted by this text. I mean, this, this text just grabs your heart. Here we go, Matthew 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judah and his brethren, and Judah begat Pharaoh and Zerah of Tamar, and Pharaoh begat uh, Esram, and Esram begat Aram. You pumped or what? <laughs> right? You read that and you're like, that, you know, am I at a commencement exercise? This is just a list of names. Like, why, why do I care about this? But if you were a first century Jewish reader that Matthew is writing to, you would not just read that list of names and yawn you would le read that list of names and you'd get to verse number three where it says Judah begat Pharaoh and Zerah of Tamar and you would say, whoa, why did he do that? He says Judah begat Pharaoh and Pharaoh is in the lineage of Jesus. Uh, Zerah is not at all in the lineage. He's completely unnecessary. It's his brother, his twin brother. You, you don't need that guy there at all. You don't need Tamar there at all. All he does is put some ornaments on this tree to decorate and to, and to really spotlight something that we want to zone in on and we want to look. He's trying to draw our attention to this. And here's why. Here's why. These names aren't just the type of people Jesus came from. They are the type of people Jesus came for. It's both. And it's meant to show us the grace of God and how it worked in Jesus' history and how it is going to work after Jesus in our hearts. In this ornament, Judah and Tamar, it is no ordinary ornament. It is a crazy story. Like it is a, it's a bizarre story. Honestly, the story of Judah and Tamar is the last thing you would want to draw attention to in your family pedigree. It's the stuff that you hide and you hope no one ever finds out about. It's the stuff you're not proud of. 
It's the stuff that is appalling to most people. And Matthew says, look at this. And he does this five different times. And it's all building towards the end of the chapter in verse number 21, where Jesus will come through Mary and she shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Genesis 38 is a, is a messy, is a crazy, is a relatively graphic passage of scripture. And it's good for me just to remind you, this is part of the reason that we have junior churches on a consistent basis. Uh, so part of the reason is that uh, my messages are tailored to fit uh, really a, an adult audience, junior high, high school. I'm really not angling at a third grader. It's not to say if you have a kid in here who's in elementary, it's fine. I will be discreet this morning. No worries. Okay. I'm not shaming you, but I'm just letting you know for just in perpetuity, that you should consider that because I'm not trying to reach them really. And at times you'll come to passages of scripture that are a bit PG-13 that you may want to, you know, dice out on your own with them. So that's one of those this morning. And for that reason and for sake of time, I'm going to give you just a brief overview of the first 10 verses, which is probably the most graphic portion of this that you can read through in your own time. Then you're like, ooh, I don't want to listen to you. I'm going to read this. Read it at home this afternoon and you can talk about it. But here's here's the snapshot that leads us up to, we'll pick it up in verse 11, but here's the snapshot of the first 10 verses. We're introduced to Judah and to Tamar. So Judah, most of us uh, would know as in Jesus, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So Judah is the great grandson of Abraham. You have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob uh, has 12 different sons. Judah is the fourth born son. It's from these 12 sons that the 12 tribes of Israel will eventually be established. So we're introduced to Judah a chapter prior to this, chapter 37. If you grew up in church, you would have inevitably heard the story of Joseph. Joseph is a big chunk of scripture. It's chapter 37 of Genesis all the way to chapter 50 of Genesis. It's massive. But there is one chapter in that whole kit and caboodle that is not about Joseph. And, it, and if you don't understand it, you think this is bizarre. Why would you insert this right into the story of Joseph? It's Genesis 38. It's the story of Judah and Tamar. So Judah is this guy that we're introduced to a chapter prior who is the older brother of Joseph. And we're told that Joseph has these dreams, his brothers envy him, and the brothers want to kill him, actually. The plan was not originally to put him in a pit and sell him. The plan was kill him. So Reuben has the idea. He's kind of the good guy in the narrative. Reuben has the idea, well, let's not kill him. Just let, let's think about it. Let's put him in a pit. And it says that Reuben intends to help Joseph escape until they're eating, which is ironic that their brother's in a pit, probably screaming for help, and they're just eating their lunch. And Judah sees these people come and has this idea, why kill him? Let's make some money. Like, I'm, I'm a capitalist. Let's make some money off this kid. Sell him into slavery, and that'll be just as good. So it's Judah's idea to do this. Reuben and Judah are the only two that we see their thought process. So Judah is not a great guy from the get-go. Then we come a chapter later, and here we have Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. So here's what happens. Judah has three sons. He gets married, has three sons. The sons are Ur, Onan, and Shelah. I know Shelah would typically be a female name nowadays, but it's Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur is the oldest, and he marries Tamar. Ur is a bad guy, and God supernaturally, somehow, providentially kills him. He says, I see your wickedness and no more, and Ur is gone, leaving Tamar as a childless widow. 
Now, there was a custom in those days that eventually would be put into law. If you want to write in your margin Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, you can read about this law later on and how this all worked. Jesus was even questioned about this law from the Pharisees and the Gospels. But it, was, it became known as the law of leveret marriage, which is Latin for levir, which means brother-in-law. So here is, here's the total of the law that sets the stage for the story, that if you don't understand it, you don't get it. The law was that if, if a guy dies and three conditions are met, condition one, he leaves a widow. Condition two, the widow has no children. Condition three, he has an eligible bachelor for a brother that's still at home. If those three conditions are met, then the eligible bachelor of a brother is to be given to her in marriage. Dad, now father-in-law, is responsible. Not her dad, her father-in-law is responsible to protect her, defend her, and provide for her. And as such, in arranged marriages, he will provide the younger brother to go marry her. And when she bears her first child, the first child will bear the name of dead daddy. So this was a way to ensure that the family lines continued to be perpetuated and that those names were born on over the course of time. So first child would bear the name of, of the father who died and all the children after that would bear the name of now her new husband. So in this story, Ur dies and now Onan is next up. The conditions are met and Judah gives her to Onan for this to take place. Onan on the outside, wants to be a good guy and do this, but inside he does not, and he doesn't want his brother's name to be remembered and to continue, the text says. Now you say, why wouldn't he just, re re just refuse this? And you could refuse this according to Deuteronomy 25, but it was very shameful. It was very dishonorable for you to not want your brother's name to continue. Like, who does that? What kind of a brother are you? And there was a condition that you could do this where you as a son could say, Dad, I know you're telling me to marry her, but I will not marry her. You could do that. But if you did that, publicly, she got to take one of your shoes. I know it sounds crazy, but it's just the way it was. She got to take one of your shoes, spit in your face, and then from that day forward, you would be known as the dude who lost his shoe. From that day forward, you would, literally, it's what it says. They will call you, it says it in Bible words, but they'll call you the dude who lost his shoe. Uh, you, you wear a scarlet letter, and from that day forward, your reputation is tainted because you would not do what you were supposed to do. So Onan, knowing this, knows it's dishonorable, says, I'll take her, and I will even enjoy the privileges of marriage with her, but I will stack the deck to ensure that she does not get pregnant. And God gets very mad at this and sees his duplicity, he sees his selfishness, he sees how wrong he is, and he kills Onan. So now there's one son left. That's where we're going to pick up the story in verse 11. One son left to Judah, Tamar is now a childless widow again. Verse number 11 of Genesis 38. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Now I will remind you this. Biblical days, once puberty was over, you were married. So Tamar is probably married to Ur at age 12 or 13, and she's very young. The end of the story, Tamar is maybe 18 or 19 at the oldest. She's being married to boys that are 14, 15-ish, somewhere around that age. So, so these, you have to keep that in mind as you're going through this. So here, uh, the father-in-law, Judah, is going to look at his probably 14-year-old daughter-in-law, Tamar, and says to Tamar's daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house till Shelah, my son, be grown. For he said, lest peradventure he die also as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So here's what happens. Outwardly, Judah says, I'll do this. 
He says, Tamar, I will give you Shelah. He's too young right now. He's, he's not old enough. I don't know. He's 10 years old maybe. He, you need a few years before he gets old enough. I will give him to her. But inside of himself, he, it, there's a very important phrase in the end of verse 11. He says, lest peradventure he die also as his brethren did. Now, this is enormously important. Judah is saying to himself, I, he's saying to her, I'll give, I'll give you Shelah. But inside he's saying, I'm not going to because I give her Shelah What's going to happen to him is what happened to his brothers. What he's saying is, she's the reason my sons are dying. She's poison ivy and her lips are killing them, so I'm not going to give my sons to her. What, what he's doing is he's living in denial. The reason they died had nothing to do with Tamar. The reason they died is because they were wicked and corrupt. The reason they died is because Judah is a loser dad and didn't train his kids properly. The reason they died is because they have no morals and no scruples. That's the reason God killed them. But Judah is in denial of that. And he says, no, I want to blame shift this over to Tamar. And I'm going to say, she's the reason my kids died. And I'm inside, I'm going to wait a couple of years. But I have no intention of letting her touch Sheila. I have no intention of giving him away. She's bad news. Verse number 12. And in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. So Judah had a wife at that point and she died. And Judah was comforted and he went up to his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend Hila the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar saying, behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put on her widow, put off her widow's garments from her, covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath, and this is important, for she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. So what happens is Judah's wife dies. He grieves over that somewhat. He is comforted. And Judah and his buddy decide, I'm going to go up to Timnath. Without giving you a geography lesson, Judah is now going to Tamar's neck of the woods because Tamar is living with her father. And we see all that in the beginning of the story. So he's going to go up to Tamar's neck of the woods where she's living. Tamar knows Sheila has grown up. It's been a few years. He should be my husband now. And you have no intention of giving to him to me as a husband. I see it for what it is now. And I see that you are going to relegate me to a life of utter misery. So understand this culture. If you are a widow, you were the most vulnerable socially and economically of any people. And the right to protect you and defend you did not fall to your dad. It fell to your father-in-law. And if, you're, if he does not give her Sheila, then she is relegated to a life of, of no kids and no husband. And she's 15 years old, maybe 16 years old, maybe however old she is, that for the rest of her life, she will be a social outcast. Like this is a dead end road for her whole life if he does this to her. This, this would be extremely cruel and unusual. It'd be one thing if he said, hey, I'm not going to do it and I release you, but he has no intention of doing this. Like th this is bad news for her and she recognizes this and verse 14 is packed with Hebrew action verbs and it, and it says that she put off, that she wrapped, that she covered. It's, it's meant to, to indicate to us how decisive and determined she is in this moment. That she sees what's happening and she is, she's out for justice. She's going to change this. So verse 15, we'll see the story gets messier. She's about to entrap him sexually and commit adultery or incest, however you want to define it here. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be an harlot. So here she is, not with her widow's clothes, but she's, uh, she's all wrapped up and, and he thinks she's a harlot because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way and said, go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? What, what are you going to pay me, bro? And he said, I'll send thee a kid from my flock. I got to go. 
She said unto him, wilt thou give me a pledge till I send it? Like, what's your, what's your down payment on this goat, supposedly, that you have? And he said, what, uh, verse uh, 18, what pledge shall I give thee, she said, thy, thy signet, thy bracelets, thy staff that's in thy hand? And he gave it to her and came in unto her and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away and laid uh, by her veil from her and put on the garments of her widowhood. So, so here's, the, here's the story. He thinks that she is a prostitute and available. He does not know that this is his daughter-in-law because her face is covered. He goes into her, but be, before all this transpires, she says, hold on, buddy, you know, you got to remit some payment here. I'll give you a goat. Well, I don't see a goat. Give me a down payment on this. Well, I'll give you my signet and cord and staff. So a signet would be a, 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 a maybe a metal, probably a stone like shaft that on the end of it had uh, something carved that was your insignia that you could cut like a stamp almost, a very short. Generally, that would have a rope attached to it that you would tie on to yourself so that you didn't have to have it in your hand all the time. It'd kind of be, you know, tied on your hip. Very often, that rope would be tied to the end of your staff. So you had your walking staff, rope, your insignia, all is one thing. This is a biblical wallet. Just think of it that way. So she says, give me your wallet and I'll know that you're good for it until you give me your goat. So he says, okay, fine, I'll leave you my wallet. So things take place. She becomes pregnant. She goes back home. No one knows. This is, this is her secret. No one knows that she is pregnant except herself. Verse number 20. I, I told you this is bizarre. Like why, Matthew, why point this out? Why want us to consider this story? This is crazy. Verse 20. Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. So he sends his buddy to, with the goat to go get his wallet back, and his buddy can't find Tamar. Surprise. 21. Then he asked the men of the place, saying, hey, where's, where's the harlot that was over here openly by the wayside? And they said, there's no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I can't find her. And also the men of the place said that there's not a harlot in this place. So Judah said, let her take it to her, lest we be shamed. Behold, I sent this kid and now it's not found her. So what happens is he tries to make good on what he said he would give her. The guy goes, comes back home and says, Judah, buddy, I, I can't find her. The guys say there's not a heart there. I don't know what to do. And he says, look, forget about it, man. Just, just don't, don't make any noise about it unless we get some shame off of this. Like just, just let it die. Who cares? We tried. Let bygones be bygones. Don't worry about it. It's her problem now. I'll, ma I'll make myself another little insignia. Who, who cares? Just, just let it go. Verse number 24. Here's where it gets even worse. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law hath played the harlot and also behold, she's with child by whoredom. And Judah said, bring her forth and let her be burnt. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man whose these are, I am with child. And she said, discern, I pray thee, whose are these? The signet, the bracelets, the staff. And Judah acknowledged them and said, she hath been more righteous than I because that I gave her not to Sheila, my son, and he knew her again no more. So what happens is a few months go by, Tamar got a little baby bump. People start to notice that. They send word to Judah. Judah, uh, she's pregnant and we know she's not married. Obviously, this was, she's not supposed to be pregnant. And Judah's response is, get her, burn her. Let's, I'm, I'm done with her. So they do this. She is, she's marching to her death. And she says, hold on, hold on, get, get Judah. Judah, you want to know who the father is? Like, I know who it is. It's not like, I haven't been sleeping around with everybody. I actually know who it is. It's the guy whose these are. She brings out the wallet. And Judah realizes, oh, okay. 
It all, it all starts to make sense. Oh, by the way, that's why she wasn't there. That's what, they didn't know her. It all comes crashing down on him. And he realizes that she's pregnant with my child. This should not be. And he says, she is more righteous than I. Uh, the last few verses to see the, the birth, and then we'll, we'll see how this makes sense to us. Verse 27, it came to pass in the time of her travail that behold, twins were in her womb. Only two women in, in scripture have, have twins that we see. This is one of them. And it came to pass when she travailed that one put his hand and the midwife took and bound a, a, a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this came out first. And it came to pass that he drew back his hand and behold, his brother then came out. And she said, how hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore, the name of the child was called Perez, which means break out and afterwards they came out his brother that had the scarlet thread that was upon his hand and his name was called Zerah so I'm not going to explain all the implications of that particular passage there but she has twins uh, one of them is, is Perez who is fully born first that he's in the lineage of Jesus he's one of Jesus's ancestors which is what Matthew pointed out to us so so here's here's this story that is that is gritty, it's, it's weird, it's bizarre, it's something you don't really want to talk about, frankly. Why would Matthew go to great lengths to say, hey, let me make sure you pay special attention to this, let me put an ornament on Jesus' family tree and let you zero in on this. I, I would submit to you that you, when you understand this fully, you see the grace that is all over this story and is all over these ornaments, and you'll see how it applies to your own life. So let me give it to you, Judah and Tamar, the grace that's here, and it'll make sense to you. First is the grace to Judah. God's grace lays open the heart of the self-righteous. Here's Judah in the story. If you walk down through the thread, verse 11, Judah essentially says, I will act wrongly, I will, I'm not going to give her Sheila because he's going to die too. I, what he's doing is he's blame shifting to her and he's saying, I'm going to act contrary to what I should be doing as the father-in-law. I'm going to be doing differently. I'm, I'm going to harm her. I'm going to relegate her to a life of misery. And I'm going to do that, but that's not my fault. That's her fault. I'm going to blame her for the death of my sons. He is, he is putting her in a vulnerable position beyond belief. But all the while telling himself, no, it's not me, it's not my choice, it's her because she's killing my kids and I'm going to blame her. Then you see more of Judah's heart in verse 14, that Tamar acts very decisively. She hears that Judah's coming and, and bing, bang, boom, she is going and she is going to act decisively, do this to, to entrap him sexually. And this, the text doesn't say this, but I have to think, how did she know to do this? Like, did she think Judah is a super upright father-in-law? This guy is just a stand-up beacon of morality, so I'll go try to entrap him as a prostitute. No, that's not how that goes. She had been around Judah. She knew him. She knew his character. The dude that wanted to kill his brother, but in turn made a buck off of him and sold him into slavery. The guy who was going to relegate her to misery. She knows this guy and she knows his character. She knows the pattern of his behavior and she knows I'm going to bait the hook and this bad boy is going to bite on this hook because I know what he's like. I know he's a sleazeball. That's the only way this works is if she deep down knows that this dude is messed up. So she does, and her plan does work out. Then you see in verse 24, and you can't just read over this and miss this. He hears that she is pregnant, and he says, bring her forth and burn her. In the Hebrew, it's two words, take, burn. Take her and burn her. And, and as modern Americans, we would view the Old Testament as 
ancient, a long time ago, and rather gritty, and we would just think, okay, he wants to kill her. But if, there's, if, if you were reading this in that time frame, you, that would jump out at you, and you would say, whoa. To, to punish someone severely, to even give someone capital punishment for some crime that they committed, th- there was a lot of that that went on. But to burn someone? You burned someone for the most heinous of crimes or if you just hated their guts. Because burning is more than death. It is torture and then death. This isn't stone her. This isn't kill her. This isn't just let her die. This, this is, I have for years now, for years, Sheila has been growing up and I have been telling myself and self-justifying myself. I have been telling myself that it's her fault. I have been vilifying her in my own heart for years now, over and over and over. Every time I think about my boys that I wish were here and we were celebrating Christmas together, whatever they're doing, every time I think about that, I think negatively of her and it's her fault and I'm blaming her and blaming her and blaming her and blaming her. And now she's pregnant and all of a sudden murderous hatred spews out of this man. Now, all of a sudden, it's, it's she, I, I was right. She's the problem. She's the reason. She's the sleazeball. So why don't we get her, take her, burn her? I've had to believe bad things about her my whole life. I've had to convince myself to, to see myself how I want to see me. To not come to terms with reality on what really happened with my sons, I have to vilify her. And you see that come out of this man. And Judah is headed for a dark, dark place. He's already messed up, but he's headed for a dark place. You, you, if he does this, one of two things happen. Number one, he justifies continually for the rest of his life, and he never sees himself for who he is, and, and he never becomes who he's supposed to be. Or number two, he does this, and then he recognizes what he did, and the guilt kills him and poisons him for the rest of his life. Like this, this is not going to go well for Judah if he burns Tamar. But this is where this man is at. And Judah is a man who through the course of the story, God is going to crack his hard heart wide open. And he's going to say, Judah, look inside of you and see who you are and come to terms with the mess that you are. Look at it. And Judah does. But Judah we can tend to think, well, man, that guy was crazy. I'm glad I'm not that way, but you're Judah. I'm Judah. I'm telling you, we're Judah. All, all Judah is doing is he is justifying his own behavior. His little internal defense lawyer that crawled up in the crack of his heart that tries to convince himself that he's not guilty and he's not wrong and he should be let off the hook and he has no culpability. That same little internal defense lawyer was transferred down to every single one of you through the generations and I have it and you have it too. That wants to tell you that, it, that it's, it's not your fault. There's changes that they should have done. It's their fault. I'm gonna, I'm gonna blame shift to them. I'm gonna justify and justify and justify myself till I'm blue in the face. And I'm gonna take my little robes of righteousness. I'm gonna wrap them around my dirty self to feel better about me. And I'm gonna look and say, well, I'm just, I'm not that bad of a person. I'll look at them and their problems and I'll justify my own problems to say, well, I'm not as bad as they are. Judah is doing what we do all the time. He is conjuring up all of these defense mechanisms to manipulate and to reason away all of his wrong behaviors. He's swindling himself. He's swindling himself. He's justifying himself. And this is so easy for us to do with our own sin. It is is so, it is so easy 
for us to look at our behavior and to justify it. And God in his grace, and it is grace, is going to lay this man's heart open and is going to say, Judah, look. And Judah is going to look and he's going to say, it grieves me and it is wrong and I see who I am and I'm laying it down. I'm not gonna minimalize it. I'm not gonna water it down. I'm walking away from this. I see that I have been wrong. All of our hearts do this. Jeremiah tells us the heart is, just, is, is desperately wicked. It's deceitful. Who can know it? We all shield ourselves. We all blame shift from the reality of how selfish we are, how obnoxious we are, how prideful we are, how angry we are, how racist we are, how whatever we are. We all do this. So it becomes, instead of I'm wrong, it becomes I couldn't help it. I'm not that bad of a guy or a girl. Well, well, if you only knew what they did, if you only knew how I was brought up, I was just reacting. They made me do it. All that is is you being Judah. That's you justifying yourself over and over and over. But notice in verse 25, this this word, if you're in the habit of circling or highlighting or something, circle the word uh, towards the end of verse number 25, discern. This is the moment where there's not a gender reveal, but there's a parent reveal, right? This is Jerry Springer before there was Jerry Springer. She's coming, she's gonna get her judgment. Hold on, time out for just a second before you kill me. I just wanna, you wanna know who the father is, Judah? Uh, yeah, actually, I kind of do. Well, it's the guy who gave me these. And before she, before she brings these forth, she says to him this word, discern, I pray thee. This is the Hebrew word, naher. It means realize, acknowledge, discern, know. What she's saying is look at this and process this real carefully, Bubba. Whose are these? Let it all come crashing down. Let all the smoke and mirrors go away and let your little house of cards come crashing down and now look at this, just square up to it and look at it. Discern, I pray thee, whose is this? And the Bible says in verse 26, you can circle this word as well, Judah acknowledged. It's the same word. It's translated differently, but it's the same word, naher. Judah discerned. He didn't run from it. He didn't wiggle out of it. Maybe for the first time in his life, She looked at it in the face. He looked at it in the face. All of a sudden, she is forcing him, and this is God's grace at work in Judah's life. She's forcing him to recognize who are you, and she's saying, Judah, look, do you see who you are? Do you see the hypocrisy? Do you see the hardness of your heart? Do you see your delusion? Do you see who you are and where you're headed? And Judah looks at it and says, I see it. I get it. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not running from this any longer. It is right here in front of me. There's a spiritual awakening happening inside of this man due to the grace of God through Tamar that is, that is waking this man up. It is bringing him to his senses. He, he is snapping out of his sinful stupor to become the man that he one day will be. And what's amazing is that this is a watershed moment in Judah's life. What happens to Judah after this? If you follow the story, you find that they find out Joseph was, you know, the brother that they sold into slavery. He's actually not dead after all. They, they find out that, that Joseph requires Benjamin to require back, if you know the story of Genesis. And Judah steps up to the plate. When, when Joseph says, Benjamin stays here, you go back home. And Judah says, no, 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 let him go. I'll be, I'll be the slave. Put me in prison. Judah steps up and takes responsibility later on. You, you go a couple chapters later, and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is about to die, 
And Jacob starts to say, here's who my sons are and here's who they will become. And you find that Judah is the one that he says, Judah is a lion. Judah will have the world by the throat. Judah will rule. Judah is a good dude. And he's going he's gonna to have, his generations are going to be good. This guy is special. But Judah was not prior to this moment. And God in his grace is saying, wake up, man. See yourself. Now, I don't, I don't know what it is in your, own, in your own heart and life, but if you're anything like me, as I studied through this and repented of this or that, if you're anything like me, there are things in your, right now in your head, and they're dancing around, and they dance to the front, and it's right there, and you know, I shouldn't be doing that one. That's wrong, that's going to mess me up. The, my, my addiction to my gambling, my addiction to my pornography, the way I treat my, my kids, the priorities that I have, the way that I look at my wife, the way, whatever it is, it's there. But then it'll dance around to the back. It'll just flutter away. And then it'll come again, and, and it'll try to squeeze it, but, but it'll, it'll escape you, and it'll go away. And if you're anything like me, you've been doing that for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. That it's coming and going and coming and going, and, and, you're, and you're not wanting to look at it. And to say, that is a problem. That is not right. That I should be done with. And it's God's grace that's bringing that around to you. It's God's grace. And I, I encourage you, square up to it. Don't, don't let it. Don't let it leave. Don't minimalize it. Don't marginalize it. Don't justify it. Don't think, well, if that, well, you don't know. Well, they do with it. And stop. Whatever it is, look at it in the face. Be like Judah and understand that God's grace is cracking him open and trying to say, man, I'm helping you here. Now understand, if this is happening to you, if this is happening to you right now that you feel God's grace at work in this way, there are two things that will happen, and I'll get to Tamar quickly. There's two things that will happen. If this happens to you like it did to Judah, you will, like Judah, you will see that you're no better than the people that you used to despise. Judah then, he sees it, he discerns it, he acknowledges it, and he says, thou art more righteous than I. He didn't say that she was, you know, a complete stand-up citizen. Like, she did entrap him sexually, and she did some stuff she shouldn't have done too. But he says, I see, you the one I used to despise, you the one I blamed, you the one that I was mad at, you the one that I hated for all these years. You, I see now that I'm more wrong than you are. I had you here up on this sinful pedestal, and I had the moral high ground. But now I no longer do. Because I see me. And, it, and if this process comes to you and you understand what the Bible says about your sin, you read Romans 3. And you see how it describes you. Not the other guy. Not the inmate. Not you. You see how that describes you in your sinful state. You will suddenly realize you don't have the moral high ground. I know you're in church. I, I know you tried to do good. I, know, I, get, I get all that. Through God's grace you were able to. But you don't, you don't have... You don't have a right to despise that person and think that you're better than them. And when, and when your heart gets, gets laid bare, you get how wrong you are. You get the weight of your sin. And Judah gets that. Secondly, I will say this. It is a painful experience. You got to know that. I don't want to shortchange you. This will help you embrace it. This is a painful experience. It's very similar to surgery. It hurts, but it's worth it in the long run. All right, this will produce some good. This will produce some joy. This will produce something that's awesome. But it is a painful experience for your heart to be laid bare and you to look in the mirror and see who you are. It's not fun. It's not fun. For Judah, it was a public humiliation. This, I mean, this is big time, and he has to come to terms with all this in front of everybody. 
This is him being publicly humiliated. You think it's comfortable for him? You think it's fun to go through the process of repentance for a day or a week or a month or whatever? You think it's fun? It's not fun. Jesus tells us that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And to help us understand that, we get parables about those that are lost. The, the coin that's lost, the sheep that's lost. I love the parable of the lost sheep because we so misunderstand it. We think, oh, guy had 100 sheep. 99 are there, one got lost. He goes after the lost one. Thank you, Lord, that you come after the lost. We love that. So he goes, and I don't know how you see it in your mind, but generally it's a, you know, it's this dark night, it's a little bit of rain, maybe lightning. The, the sheep is wandering around or it's stuck on the edge of the cliff or stuck somewhere. And the shepherd goes out to find his lost sheep. So he finds the sheep and then the text says that he puts it on his shoulders and he carries it back home and they have, they have a celebration, they have a party. And just like that, when you're found and God redeems you, then there's a party in heaven and that's beautiful. But generally we think of it this way. The shepherd goes and finds the sheep, and the sheep is, ah, I'm scared, I'm scared. He's out there, you know, in the rain and in the wilderness, and he hears the shepherd's voice, or he sees the shepherd, and all of a sudden, little bitty lamb smiles and dances gleefully and runs to the arms of the shepherd, and they hug, and he kisses him and says, I've missed you so much, and he carries him back home. Not so. That's not the way it goes down. First of all, it doesn't say it's a lamb, it says it's a sheep. So this is a big animal that you don't really want to tote around on your shoulders. In an ideal world, you, the shepherd, would say, come on, sheep, let me walk you back home so I don't have to lug your, your big self around everywhere. But when a sheep is lost, you say, oh, well, maybe it was hurt. Well, if it's hurt, then they didn't get home and have a party. They went home and they tried to fix it, okay? He's not hurt. What happens when a sheep is lost and it is found is it remains very, very afraid. It's not like when you find your child when they lost and they see mom and dad and all of a sudden it's all gone and they cry and it's, and it's great. It doesn't happen that way. Sheep are dumb. They get found and they, they get afraid. They run from the shepherd. They'll bite the shepherd so much so that the shepherd will have to put them, carry them on the shoulder and say, I'm taking you back home, you big idiot. <laughs> but for the sheep, you're scared out of your mind. You don't know what's happening. This, this process of being found and being taken back, the redemptive process can be scary and painful and it can threaten you and you can think, but if I, if I do this and I have to tell them and what are they going to think if this means that I won't do this? And this? It can be so threatening to your, to your own existence, but you have to understand as Judah does that this is a painful experience for him, but this is for his good. This is God's grace opening this man up and saying, look at yourself and see the mess that you are. I know it's scary, but I'm going to lead you to the man that you're supposed to be through this process. So don't, if you feel God's grace right now in your life, don't resist it. But the grace of Judah leads us to the grace of Tamar, which I'll be brief with. And here's, here's Tamar's grace, which helps you understand, okay, I get why this is on Jesus' tree now. Grace overlooks the sin of a guilty party. Grace overlooks the sin of a guilty party. What's happening with Tamar? Two things. On one hand, there's sexual entrapment and adultery that she's not supposed to be doing. Now, on the other hand, she is going after justice. I mean, Judah is wronging her big time, like majorly for the rest of her life. And, and she, she's calling him on his double standard. I, Judah, can sleep with whatever prostitute I want, no big deal. You sleep with somebody, burn her. That's a double standard. That's not very fair. She, she is, she's calling him to recognize you can, you can do whatever you want with them or them, but I can't do what I want, you know. She, she is coming after some justice here, 
God is definitely concerned about the welfare of the widow. That's all through Scripture. All through Scripture. That, that he wants, he wants the, the widow. He wants even, he'll say, the orphan, the oppressed, even the, the stranger or the alien, the, the foreigner. He wants them to, to experience functionality. He wants them to experience inclusion. He wants them to experience dignity. He, he wants them to do that. And he says to those that have means available to themselves to help those who have less, that if you do that, you're not, you're not greedy, but, but you're sinful and you're wrong and you're unjust. So Judah is being extremely unjust, and, and she is pursuing a bit of, ju- of justice here, that he's depriving this widow of her right or of her due. Now, she is going about it the, the wrong way. So what happens at the end of the story is that Tamar isn't declared to be guiltless. He doesn't say that there's no wrong that you've done here, but he does say in light of my wrong and my sin, my sin is greater, you are more righteous than I am. Which I love this text for this reason. It helps us see that God is not a Republican or a Democrat. The Democrat says, you know, good for her. She didn't do anything wrong. She stuck it to the dude. She got justice, her body, whoop-de-doo. And God says, no, that's not how that works. The, the conservative will say, well, she's a fornicator. She needs to be punished off with her head. Two wrongs don't make a right. So, so you know, she, she did wrong. That's not okay for you to do. And, and God's not in either. God sees the problem. He sees the guilt. He sees that she took matters into her own hands, which, which was not okay for her to do. She has some culpability in this. Two wrongs don't make a right. There's a measure of truth to that. But God also understands what Judah's doing to her and how that really trumps this and how it mitigates the wrong that she's doing. And he gets all of that. And in, in this story, God gives to this woman grace. Something that at the end of the day, she, she did not deserve. The, the law actually stated that there was a punishment due her. The law stated that. But God says in his grace, you are not going to have it. Here's, here's what happens in Tamar. Tamar gets her life back when Judah looks at her and declares her not guilty. She is saved that day. As a matter of fact, she's saved from a fiery judgment. That is what happens in the life of Tamar. And this is meant to draw us back to Christ to understand that the ultimate Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that we are in an essence Tamar and we need him to look at us and not act like there is no guilt, not act like there is no sin, but to say, I, even though you have sinned, I declare you not guilty and there is no punishment due you. And you are, you are saved today. You are, there is a, a fiery judgment that is no longer yours that I am going to declare you righteous. That is what, that's what happens here in the story. In spite of your sin, you are righteous. There is no punishment due you. This is meant to show us that if you will pursue the grace of God, opening you up and showing you who you are and you'll come to terms with your sin and the weight of it and you'll repent of it, that there is a further grace that is right next door that's coming next that will say, okay, I recognize that I am guilty, but in Jesus Christ, in salvation, I can enter into a relationship with him and say, I am guilty, I confess. And he can say, I see your guilt, but I am pushing that off to the side and I declare you righteous and there is no judgment due you and you are saved today and there's nothing more to do. 
This is meant to say if you are a Christian that there are those moments where well, you'll come face to face with it and you'll recognize it and you should repent, you should lay it down, you should be done with it. But at the same time, when you do that, you'll, you'll hear from the Father, I see you through my Son, I see you as righteous. This is exactly what 2 Corinthians tells us, that he, Jesus, was made to be sin and he knew no sin. He was perfect. Why? So that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That this, this is, you, if you get this, you get why Matthew's doing this. You get what he's saying in this ornament of grace that look at the grace to, to help you see yourself. Look at the grace that when you de- do see yourself and confess that the punishment is no longer yours, but there's righteousness. There is no judgment do you see it. And I, I don't know your story. I don't know where you're at. I don't know, I don't know what your heart needs today, but I can tell you that the, the grace of Judah and Tamar is grace that every single person needs. And it's there. I hope today there was something the, the spotlight got shined on that wasn't so uber comfortable for you, but you're looking at it in the face, and I hope that you see that if you will, it's, it's a bit painful, but if you'll lay that down and you'll be done with it and you'll walk away from it, that there is, there is a life that is better for you to follow that. If, you'll, if you've never come to terms with Jesus, I hope that you'll do just that, that you'll recognize that your sin is a big deal. You can't minimize it. I don't care what your religious pedigree was. You can't. You can't. You have to see it for what it is and say, I can't fix that. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I feel like they're more guilty, but it's me. I'm wrong. And it's only through the cross of Christ that he dies and takes our sins for us that he can look and say, I know you're wrong, but I'm not going to look at you that way. I forgive you. You're righteous. We're done. No more judgment. Don't worry about it. It's done. It's over. We're all good. I declare you righteous even though you're guilty. If you've never done that, please do it today. Do it today.